You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. My name in Hungarian was spelled G-R-O-F, and it's pronounced Grof. And everybody looked at G-R-O-F and pronounced it Grof. And that, that didn't sound like me, and I wanted them to say my name the right way. Former Intel CEO Andy Grove. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. It was a young immigrant from Europe who came to the United States nearly 70 years ago who helped create and promote a technology that would literally transform the world. His name was Andrew Grove. Well, his anglicized name was Andrew Grove. He fled his native Hungary in 1956 during the Hungarian Revolution to come to the United States. In 1968, he joined the just-formed new company called Intel, eventually becoming its third CEO, and it was his leadership that helped propel Intel to the forefront of this fledgling industry. And in 1997, Andy Grove was Time Magazine's Man of the Year for his influence in advancing the power and potential of the microchip. In 2001, Andy Grove wrote his autobiography, a book he called Swimming Across. And that's when I had the chance to talk with him for a few minutes. So here now, from 2001, Andrew Grove. What made you decide to write this book? The fundamental reason is it's, it's a kind of a longer story, but the critical step was that I became a grandfather, and I realized that if I don't leave this story for my grandchildren now, by the time they're going to be old enough to be interested, I'll be too old to tell them. A secondary reason is you know, I've been kind of reticent to mix up business and personal stories and for many years I've been a spokesman for Intel and technology and I didn't think that my personal background belonged in discussions along those lines. Uh, but in 97, a time named me Man of the Year and they wrote a fairly lengthy profile and the guy who did that profile managed to get me to talk for that particular profile about my background. So I cracked the wall that I erected between those two subjects and then driven by the grandfather syndrome, uh, the rest followed. Was, was it an easier book then to write having already given some of yourself to the time magazine article? I mean, you, you, it's not like you were starting out from scratch telling the public about your life. Well, it's not because of time magazine, but because I lived through it, uh, these are genuinely my memoirs. These are my memories as I remember them. Uh, so it was a, actually a very easy book to write because, first of all, I didn't have to do any research. Whatever I remembered, that's what's in the book. You do seem to have a remarkably sharp memory for, for detail. Well, I have an okay memory, but it's not as sharp as it seems from the book. The book represents the recollections that I do have. You don't know what I don't re remember. I don't know what I don't remember. But when I compare notes with friends who live through the same period of time and they will say, don't you remember when such and such happened? I'm as likely to look at them blank as they are <laughs> to look at some of my recollections. Recollections are kind of like photographs. You have your own personal album of them. 
and you recall what's in your album and you don't recall what's not. Well, there was one review of your book that said that you don't spend much time talking about war-torn Europe, and I gather that that was, that's, I mean, we can read about that in any history book. That wasn't your aim, was it? No, no, no. My aim was to describe one person's passage through the war, the aftermath of the war, the communist regime, and immigrating to America. I'm not writing a history book, I'm writing recollections. And those recollections are also the period of my first, period of time represented by my first 20 years, which is, to use that well-worn phrase, is my coming of age period. And life after fashion went on in the midst of war and revolutions and repressions. You know, I had turned into an adolescent. I had the experiences of a typical adolescent. I got interested in chemistry. I struggled with school. I tried to get into the university. It's an ordinary day-to-day event intermixed with the impact of the uh, pretty tough environment in which I grew up. But it's difficult enough to be a teenager anywhere in the world, even under the best of circumstances. It must be a particular challenge to be a teenager. Try to find your identity, find out who you are supposed to be in the world when the surroundings around you keep changing. You know, I wonder if it's harder or easier because uh, one of the reasons teenage years are tough in the way you describe them is because you have the luxury of self-introspection and self-indulgence, and perhaps the challenges of a tough environment kind of distract you from doing that, and you become more goal-oriented, more oriented toward coping with the next problem that life poses for you, so perhaps harder in some way than easier in some other. Well, you had to pack a lot of life experience into a very short time. One of the, one of the reviews of your book says in, in a single sentence that you barely survived scarlet fever, you hid from the Nazis in, the, in a Budapest basement of a sympathetic Christian family, suffered anti-Semitic taunts as a youth, fled your homeland as Soviet tanks arrived in the Hungarian uprising, and sailed off alone to the U.S. by the age of 20. You've lived two or three lifetimes even before you got here. Probably true, but it is also good to remember that there were thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people with a similar life who grew up in the same kind of setting, had to deal with the same kind of issues, and dealt with it in their own way. So, you know, I may be unusual in terms of a another generation, but I certainly wasn't unusual for my generation. All of us had to deal with the war, the repression, and many of us with the immigration, fairly sudden immigration, unplanned for immigration to a different land. Now, you say in your book that you had mixed feelings about the communists because of, of they had saved your life, but on the other hand, they were interfering in your in your daily life. Well, what happened there is to elaborate on what you just said, what you just quoted. Uh, they saved my life from the Germans. They saved my life from 
not to put a too fine a point on it, extermination. So I welcome them, but that welcome immediately turned a little shaky because within days of the arrival of the Russian troops, a uh, Russian soldier raped my mother. Uh, another one threatened to blow up our cellar where we lived during the bombardment. And thereafter, in fairly rapid order, the communist, that communist government that the R Russian troop put into power took over running the country and became re repressive in, in its own way. So, yes, they saved our lives, but they did not deliver a free life or a prosperous life after that. They delivered a fairly tough life. After this short break, Andy Grove considers where his life could have gone. Now back to my 2001 interview with Andrew Grove. Well, how do you maintain your spirit? How do you maintain the, the drive to to strive for something better when you're under the, the communist heel? Well, what's the alternative? You know, you can't give up. You can't curl up in a fetal position and hope these things go away. You make do, make the best of the situation. You go on with your daily life. You go on with your with your friends. You participate in sports and such as is available to you. You go on, go to school. You date girls, and life goes on even under these circumstances. Where would where would your life trajectory have taken you had you not come to the U.S.? Hard to say, but. It's kind of doubtful that I would have had opportunities like Intel uh, or, or like the microelectronics technology that I happened to participate in by arriving at the right place at the right time. Would you perhaps become a teacher or, or something like that? I probably would have been a chemist, an industrial chemist. Mm -hmm. uh, I do have an inclination in teaching, so the, the surmise that I might have become a teacher or, or an academic is... Probably a fair guess, assuming they would have taken me. And that assumption gets us back to the vagaries of a repressive dictatorial regime where merit is certainly not the prime factor with which decisions and promotions and selections are made. Now, once you had made the decision to come to the U.S., did you know at that point that you were closing the door behind you for good? I think so. Uh, I never heard of anyone who escaped, who came back. I, I mean, escaping from Hungary in 1956 was a maybe one-way door. Maybe one way, certainly not two-way door. So I did not anticipate that I would ever go back, and I was hoping against hope that my parents would be able to join me later, which actually did it. Did it. Now, you, you, your mother is still alive, is she not? Correct. Oh, bless her heart. What, what, what did she think of your book? Well, her first reaction was that, why do you bother? Who is going to be interested in this? Who cares? That was her first reaction. And then she started reading it. 
Then she got quite engrossed in it. And she quibbled with a few details. This happened before that, that happened before that, that kind of things. And which, back to what we were talking about, the memories are individual. I remember them differently. I stuck with my own recollection of them. Then she really got into it. I read it maybe three, four times. And she has a walker with which she walks around in the house. And she carries my book uh, in the basket of that walker wherever she goes. So she's quite attached to it. <laughs> the, the, the other thing that occurred to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, America is a much more is a country much more aware today of its of its multi uh, multi ethnic background than we were, say, fifty or sixty years ago. Do you think you would have had to change your name today if you came to the U.S. today? I didn't have to change my name. I chose to change my name because if my name to me is the way you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And my name in Hungarian was spelled G-R-O-F, and it's pronounced Grof. And everybody looked at G-R-O-F and pronounced it Gruff. And that, that didn't sound like me, and I wanted them to say my name the right way. And after correcting people in, and repeatedly and not being able to make a dent, I tried to look for a phonetic spelling that would produce the right pronunciation. And <laughs> And, you, and it was just your difficult luck that if you normally probably could have just put an E on the end, but it was just your luck that at that time everybody knew Ferdi Grofet. They, they, that is exactly <laughs> what happened. I tried an E at the end, and they said, oh, Grofet. No, 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 that's not right either. But back to your question, America was very diverse then also, but uh, the di- diversity in New York City then was... Uh, a lot of Eastern Europeans, a lot of Puerto Ricans, uh, a lot of relatively recent third-generation Italians. Waves of immigration have taken place in the United States forever. And uh, today we are aware of the waves of immigration, the Russian refugees, the Middle Eastern refugees, the Africans, uh, who dominate the scene today. But... The waves are different, but the existence of the waves has always been around. And I guess to complete the whole circle of story, we've been recording this interview on a computer that has a sticker on it that says Intel Inside. <laughs> Just, Good what, for you. What? <laughs> Good for me, too. Andrew Grove died in 2016. He was 79. And you can get your copy of Swimming Across by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also find my interviews with two former Apple CEOs, my 1987 conversation with John Scully. Someday we are going to see personal computers that may look nothing like the ones we have today. They may be small enough to wear on your wrist, to be sewn into the fabric of your clothes, or even worn in your spectacles. We'll have an infrastructure of information over telecommunications lines. And my 1998 interview with Gil Emilio. It was like a startup company where you can live without the strategy, but, but Apple kept acting that way even after it was a $10 billion company. And frankly, it just doesn't work, obviously. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on every major podcast platform. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman who is quite literally maybe America's foremost expert on entertaining and menus and decorating. 
my 1994 interview with Martha Stewart. Making food look as good as it tastes is an art. Uh, it takes a little practice, but everybody can do it. And setting a pretty table, too. Everybody can do that. Little knack here, a little nick there. You know, you know what I mean. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.